If you will, open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. The concept of being careful how and where you walk has, of course, both literal and metaphorical contexts. For your physical health, you must be careful how and where you walk, steadying yourself for the steps ahead. We all know that. So that you may ensure that your walk of any degree would be around any dangerous areas which would cause you to harm your body, hurt your mind by missteps. We all know that very, very well. And of course, in Scripture, particularly with respect to the Apostle Paul, the idea of being careful how and where you walk opens up to us, metaphorically speaking, spiritually speaking, tremendous insight into the Christian life. The Apostle Paul particularly, as I said, is one who uses this idea of your step-by-step walk in the Christian life many, many times. I think it may be something like 32 different times the Apostle Paul mentions this idea of the Christian's walk. It's the the Greek word peripateo, and it means a step-by-step walk of spiritual life, of growth, of maturity. And we can see, because of our own physical walking, in particular, how very important this metaphor for spiritual growth and maturity in the Christian life toward Christ-likeness really is. This is precisely what Paul does here at the end of Philippians chapter 3 and even into the first verse of chapter 4. So let's read it together. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17 through chapter 4, verse 1, where the subject matter should really come to its conclusion. Philippians 3.17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God, small g, is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. For, it should be for, not but, for our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. If you put Philippians three seventeen through chapter 4, verse 1, into a context of walking... I see four directions that we're to be clearly aware of in our walk as professing Christians. And the first one is this. If you want an outline point for this morning's message, it is this. Watch for 
and walk with those who are imitating Jesus Christ. Watch for and walk with those who are imitating Jesus Christ. That's shown to us in verse 17. Notice it again as we read it just a few moments ago. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. What kind of direction is Paul talking about there? Well, it seems pretty evident to me, and I think it would be to you as well, that the kind of direction we're to travel in this regard is forward. We're to travel forward. We're to take those, those feet of ours, spiritually speaking, and we are to walk forward. We're to put one foot in front of another, and we're to walk. We're to walk to a, a goal, uh, to an aim, to a pursuit. And hasn't Paul already told us this very clearly? Look back at chapter 3. He says in verse 7, for instance, For whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So he says, I'm doing everything, including the loss of everything for the sake of Christ so that I may be involved in knowing Christ, Christ Jesus my Lord. And then he says at the end of verse 8, just before verse 9, that I may gain Christ, to be found in Him. Verse 10, to know Him. The end of verse 10, becoming like Him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain, verse 11, the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, verse 12, or am already perfect, but I press on. Here's his goal, here's his aim, here's his ultimate pursuit to make this, this redemption, uh, this full glorification my own, Paul says. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own, I want to own my Christian walk in such a way that my ultimate goal, the finish line, the prize, is to do one thing. What is it? Verse 14, to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's the upward call? Glorification. I want my my body glorified. I want my body resurrected. I, I want my soul Upon the separation of my soul from its body, I want to be in the presence of the Lord, I will. And I will, but it will only be with my soul. And I want my soul and my body to be resurrected so that when my soul, already with the Lord, is joined with my body, we will be forever with the Lord and the goal will have been accomplished. The prize will have been achieved. That's what I want. I want, to, I want to work toward that prize. I don't want to take my eyes off the prize. And because of that, that affects my life in the here and now. If you and I clearly keep our eyes on the prize of going forward to see the very redemption of our bodies, like we read in our Scripture reading time from Romans 8, the very redemption of our bodies the very glorification of the resurrected bodies of all the saints reunited with their souls so that they are one again, both body and soul, in a glorified way so that we can see the prize fully realized. Then that not yet of what we want to achieve as we see it, it's our goal, then we got to work hard to make it all the way through. Got to keep running. 
He uses these athletic metaphors, does Paul. I, I don't aimlessly beat the air, 1 Corinthians 9. I, I, I box in such a way so that I may win the prize. And then he says here in Philippians 3, so that I may stretch forward and touch that finish line tape. That's what I want to do. I don't want to swerve to the left or to the right. I don't want to stumble unnecessarily. And yes, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be fatigue. I'm going to have, in a sense of my mind and my body, levels of fatigue that will motivate me to want to give up, and I have to press through that because the goal is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I want to make it to heaven. That's my goal. I want that to come. And I've got to play by the rules with that athletic metaphor. I've got to play by the rules. I've got to do what's right. I can't cut corners. Have you ever seen those those marathon runners or others, 5K, 10K, and they have to keep cameras on them at all times. Why? Because some people lose their way inadvertently by mistake. They take the wrong trail. Sometimes, I'm sure because of Satan's temptations, he wants us to get off the right path, and so he tempts us to swerve onto a trail with which we're not familiar, and when we do, if we buy that that's the right trail when it's not, we can get off course. And then there are some who don't play according to the rules, and when they think the camera's not watching, they take a trail that they have marked off by themselves before so that they cut corners so that they don't have to run as much so that they can win the prize, but illegitimately so. And sometimes those cameras are able to catch them, and they're disqualified. And the Apostle Paul says about himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, I've got to compete according to the rules, and I've got to do it fairly and well, and I can't be distracted and I can't swerve to the left or the right by satanic temptation or worldly pleasures or desires. I cannot fall to the allurements of the world. I've got to do my work, and I've got to be fastidious in doing so. This is my sanctification. This is my walk in grace. This is my run so as to receive the prize. And that's what he's saying. And in the midst of doing that, there are people who will attempt for their own desires to get you to run the wrong race, to follow them where they're going. Come this way. Run this way. It'll be better. It'll be easier. You'll make it. You won't be as tired. It'll not be as futile with you in your mind engagement on being on that path, but be on this path. Follow us. Follow our example. Go the way we're going. It'll be better for you. The other way, too hard, too difficult, too taxing, too trying. Why go through all of that suffering? Why go through all of that effort? Come this way. Veer to the left. Take the course to the right. Those things that you do that makes sure you finish will only be done my way, this way, our way. Follow this. Follow us. That's exactly what Paul is talking about here in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 17. Look, if you're going to follow the prize, like you know that I as an apostle, the apostle Paul, even though currently imprisoned and writing you this epistle, this letter, if you want to follow a guy like Timothy, 
who, who is that which is like a carbon copy of me, or Epaphroditus, this one who had risked his life for your sakes. These are the true ones, and you ought to watch out and follow them. Follow us. Follow me. Watch out and walk with those who are imitating Jesus Christ. That's what he means in verse 17. Look at it again. Brothers. Brothers. It's a term of endearment. He loves them. He'll say that much in chapter 4, verse 1, with a plethora of terms. Here he says, brothers. That's a term of endearment. That's why I love to refer to you folks as my brothers and sisters in Christ. And often, it's not because I don't know your name, it's because I want you to know that I count you as a brother or sister if that's the way I refer to you. Because we're, we're in this thing together. We need each other. Notice, plural, brothers. And it includes, of course, sisters. Brothers is, in this context, brother context brothers and sisters. And know this, what he says next. Join in imitating me. Join in imitating me. And then he says later, according to the example that you have in us. And I take the us to at least be Paul and his apostolic band, Paul and Timothy, Paul and Epaphroditus, Paul and the other leaders of the church there in Philippi. Uh, it's a kind of we as though Paul is talking about himself and also them. No contradiction here. Join in imitating me according to the example you have in us. Now, I know the first thing that jumps out from the page is, is this guy arrogant or what? I mean, join in imitating me? As though, as though I'm the, the model, as though I'm the example? No, he's not doing that. What's he saying? What, what's the imitation? Well, go back to chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1. Here's what he's saying in essence. Yes, I do want you to follow me, but not in an arrogant way. I want you to follow, for instance, my own prayer life, Paul's prayer life. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Another term of endearment. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. We're all in this together. And this is the way I pray for you. For God is my witness, verse 8, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Who doesn't want to follow a person who says, I'm praying for you constantly and I'm yearning for all of the affection of Jesus Christ in my heart for you? Who doesn't want a prayer partner like that? So when a guy like Paul, not arrogantly so, far from it, says, join in imitating me, have the kind of prayer life that Paul has for you. You have the same kind of prayer life for him. That's what he's telling the Philippians. That's why we exist as a body. When someone says, I'm praying for you, we assume they mean it. We assume they're doing it. If you don't, then don't say that. 
But you ought to say that and then follow up with it, just like Paul does here. He says, I yearn for you all. And then he says in verse 9, this is the prayer, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What a prayer. What a prayer. I want somebody like that praying for me like that. That's, that's Paul's prayer life. Yeah, I can, I can work toward imitating that. I should. I really should. And what about Paul's attitudes about life or death? Look at verse 20 of chapter 1. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What an attitude about life or death. He says, look, if I live on in the flesh, in this physical body, this tent, it's for your benefit because I'm going to continue to pray for you. I'm going to continue to teach you. I'm going to continue to write you. I'm going to continue to encourage you. So if I live, it's for you. Who wouldn't want to follow somebody like that? He says, but if I die, uh, to live is Christ and to die is Gain, to gain Christ. I've got it made. I've got it totally made. If I live, it's for you. If I die, it's for Christ. Who wouldn't want to imitate a guy who has those kinds of attitudes about life and about death? And then notice Paul's striving and suffering. You know, we talked in the 9 o'clock hour about this concept of suffering from Romans 8. Yeah, we're going to have this redemption of our bodies providing that you suffer. And somebody says, what's with the providing? I'm into the glorification of my body, but the providing you suffer is not necessarily always what I'm bargaining for. Paul knows that. Notice, Notice what he says. He says, middle ways through verse 27, that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Notice this, mark it down. If you've never seen this verse, here it is today in your hearing. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you like a gift that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul's setting an example for how to suffer well. He's in prison. He's incarcerated. And yet he's got a tremendous attitude like that. In fact, at the end of Philippians, this is so wonderful, He says in Philippians 4.22, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. He's he's leading some of Caesar's households to Christ. He says, oh, by the way, these dear, genuine people now who are a part of Caesar's household, they say, we greet you in the Lord. See, he's blooming wherever he's planted. He's doing, in whatever situation he's in, a kind of spiritual contentment. He'll tell us that in chapter 4. I've learned to be content in in all circumstances, in any way, if I have plenty or if I'm in want. Who doesn't want to imitate a guy like that? How about perseverance? Look at chapters 
uh, chapter 2, verses 16 and 18. Who doesn't want to follow a guy like this? Holding fast, Paul says, to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain, there's that metaphor of running, or labor in vain, even if I myself am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Look, when a person says to you as a human being, flawed as they are, sinful as they are, broken as they are in their sin and wretchedness, all that being so, God's called us to live a life of holiness and there are some who aspire to real, tangible, obedient, step-by-step walking in holiness and we ought to see them as those we can follow. Hebrews 13, 7, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you and considering the conduct of their faith, imitate them. The Bible knows nothing about, well, there's only one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ought to imitate and everybody else, no way. There are believers, and as they follow Christ, and as they enjoin us to follow them, that's an okay thing. And Paul's one of them. Paul is one of them. And I just read to you from chapter 3, verses 7 and following, how he says that I want to know Christ that I want to be in him, that I want to be found in him, that I want to be even sharing in his sufferings so that, like he was resurrected from the dead, I shall be resurrected from the dead. Who can't follow someone like that? Now, if you and I had been in the first century and we were following Paul, I'm sure a time or two he'd say, and by the way, don't follow what I just did. I'm a sinner. And of course, every person in the world, in the history of the world, save Jesus Christ, are sinners. But that doesn't negate our following them in the whole, in the main. Everybody wants to, well, you know, I mean, look, I don't want to follow so-and-so because I saw them sin once. Well, come on. What we're talking about is the general pattern of somebody's life the general course of their life, the step-by-step walking, even if they walk backwards a time or two, they immediately confess it, they want to be pursuing Christ as they ought, and that's what Paul says. You know what he says in chapter 4, verse 9? He says this about himself and about those like Timothy, those like Epaphroditus. Look at verse 9. For what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Do you see those four ideals there? Learn, received, heard, and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, there's a guy who's a model to follow. And if you notice back in Philippians 3.17 that Paul uses these words, imitate and example. Imitate is the word out of which we actually get the English word mimic. Mimetes. Mimic those who are godly around you. Follow them. Imitate them. Mimic them. And notice, according to the example you have in us. Example, that's the word for type. I'm a type or a model for you to follow. And this is, this is what Paul also told the Corinthians. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is not the only place where Paul has talked about this. He's talked about this a number of times. He told the Corinthians who desperately needed to follow good examples, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 
Look at verse 14. Mark this down in your Bibles. He says, I do not write these things, Paul speaking, to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have had countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. And when I'm not around, he says in verse 17, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. And lest you think he's talking about his arrogant self, he actually says in verse 18, some are arrogant. So he's, he's saying, I'm not in that group. They are, I'm not. And you ought to imitate those who are following Christ. And that's precisely why he says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow me, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul's not a cul-de-sac. He's not saying follow me as though I am Christ. He knows his weaknesses. He knows his failures. He knows he's a cul-de-sac as a human being in many ways. But he also knows this, you follow me as long as I'm following Christ. And in the regularity of my life, in the pattern of my life, in the, in the main of my life, I'm following Christ and you should too, because in following me, you'll follow Christ. So you've got to go forward, folks. You've got to go forward in this battle. And the ultimate example is not far away, because doesn't it say in Philippians chapter 2 that if you have a mind like this, according to verse 5, then you'll follow Jesus Christ, who was humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross, and who was highly exalted for his humility, and God exalted him above all other things, literally, everything in heaven, everything on earth, everything under the earth, so that at the name Jesus is Lord, he's the ultimate person to follow. And Paul says, that's the guy I'm following. If you're going to go with me, and if you're going to run alongside me, then we're going in this direction. Any other direction, don't go there. Forward to this direction. So if you're going to talk about the walk-by-walk step of the Christian life, go forward in following someone like the Apostle Paul who is following the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? Practically speaking, number two, number two. For every person that you're following who needs to be followed, there are imposters. And Paul wants to warn us about them. Look at verses 18 and 19. Don't walk with those who are enemies of Jesus Christ. He's got to tell us. I mean, I, I even said to somebody this week, you know, studying this passage, maybe I should just cut it off at point one. Because we're also encouraged when we're encouraged to follow the right people. Follow the right people. Do the right things. But you know, for all of our effort in following the right person, like the Apostle Paul, like Timothy, like Epaphroditus, like the Philippians, like those to whom you are currently following and you love it so because they're helping you to follow Jesus Christ, for every one of those encouragements, there's also a threat. There's a threat. And Paul says, let me warn you. Look at chapter 3, verse 18. There are those who aren't doing what I've just told you. Don't walk with those 
who are the enemies of Jesus Christ. The direction I see here, backwards. Not forwards, backwards. I see people who are encouraging the Philippians to do the opposite of what Paul is telling them. They're wanting, they're wanting under the guise of going forward, a going backward. And he says, I'm telling you who they are. Look at what he says, verse 18. For many, notice that, many. There are many of them out there. For many of whom I have often told you. Often. How did he do that? How did he often tell them that? Well, undoubtedly, he wrote the, the Philippians as he did the Ephesians and the Colossians and those in the Galatian region. He would write them letters. Not all of them inspired. This one inspired, but he probably wrote them other letters. Maybe they were shorter. Maybe it was just a note or two. Or maybe he sent word through one of his disciples. Maybe it was verbal. Hey, you got to watch out. Be warned. Be careful. Or maybe when he did visit them. And even after this statement, if he's able to come back. Now, in my letter, I, I told you to be warned of, of a certain group. Uh, did you remember that? Let me tell you again. And I know, I know, preachers are the most notorious. Look, I think I've heard that line from Lance a hundred times. But Peter says, I desire to encourage you by way of reminder. Why? Two problems. We either are guilty of familiarity. Oh, the truth just becomes so familiar to us. Oh, I know where that passage is. I know what that passage says. It's so familiar, we, we lose sight of its necessity just because of familiarity or forgetfulness. We need to be reminded because we forget. Almost as soon as our eyes look off the page of Holy Scripture, we've forgotten what we just read. So whether it's forgetfulness or familiarity, Paul says, I have warned you, I've often told you, and now he says, I even tell you with tears. I mean, he is saying, you have got to know who these people are. You've got to be warned about these people. Now look, I know it's negative. I know what he's about to say is really negative, and, and we want to harp on the positive, but we don't even know the full extent of the positivity unless we know it's opposite, right? They're negative people, and they're going to be clamoring for your services. They're going to be asking you to follow them. And Paul says, for every good, noble Christian that you can follow who follows Christ, myself, Timothy, Epaphroditus, others, there's going to be many, many more, hundreds of them that say, don't go that way, go this way. Don't follow, don't, don't follow him. In fact, there's an entire book of our Bibles in the New Testament in which Paul, hating it though he does, is having to do nothing but to defend his own apostolicity, his apostleship, because he's got these people dogging his steps all the way. No, Paul isn't true. Paul's in it for sexual favors. Paul's in it for the money. Paul's in it for his own self-aggrandizement. Uh, Paul's arrogant. Don't follow him. Follow us. And Paul even calls them, and that book is 2 Corinthians, and he calls them the false apostles. They're not real, but they purport themselves to be real. Paul says, don't follow them. And, of course, the false apostles are saying about the true apostle, don't follow him. So unsuspecting people say, well, I don't know who to follow. 
I mean, who is it we're to follow? I mean, Paul says we've got to follow him as he follows Christ. Others say don't follow him because he's not really following Christ, or if he is, he's doing it with the wrong motives. You've got to follow us because we're really telling you the truth. And then Paul even says something wild in 1 Corinthians 11, right before he starts talking about the Lord's Supper. He says this in 1 Corinthians 11, and there must be heresies among you. And you say, what? There must be heresies among you? I thought you were a guy who was stamping out all the heresies. He says, there must be heresies among you so that those who are the true ones may be made manifest. You see, sometimes you can't know what the truth is until you've seen its ugly opposite. And so Paul says, I know those ugly opposites are there. They're all around and they're clamoring for your attention. And perhaps here in Philippi, maybe these are in the form of traveling evangelists, traveling Bible teachers. They're on the circuit, and they go all around Asia Minor, and because they didn't have the Holiday Inn, they would come to your house and say, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian teacher. You really want to hear what I have to say? Can we lodge for a time? Well, you're a Christian, Christian brother, Christian sister, come on. And you roll out the fatted calf, and you, 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 you feed them, and you lodge with them, you, you house them, and then you start hearing what their teaching's all about. Hey, let's sit down and have some fellowship around the table. Pass the mashed potatoes, would you? Let me tell you, this is the way I see Christianity. And then they start engaging you. And maybe they're quite good in their verbal skills. And maybe they start telling you things, and then maybe they slip in this. And you know, Paul's told you this, but Truth be told, it's really that. And Paul says, you've got to be warned. And I've told you, even with tears. Did you know? Look over in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Do you know that this idea of Paul and his tears is very common? You could say, in a sense, that Paul's life was a life of tears. Tears of both joy and and tears also of sorrow, tears even of sorrowful warning. In Acts chapter 20, this is Paul, and he's talking to the elders of the church of Ephesus, not Philippi, but Ephesus, and it appears as though he's giving them, as it were, his last will and testament. He's saying, look, I'm probably not going to see you again, and it adds to the scene here because there's many tears in this scene. It says that when Paul was finished, they wouldn't let him go. It says they jumped on his neck. That means they hugged him and wouldn't let him go for fear that what he told them was the truth, that I shall not see your face again. And here's what he says in Acts chapter 20. He says, verse 19, for instance, serving the Lord with all humility, the first day I set foot in Asia, last part of verse 18, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. A lot of tears. Look at verse 31. Therefore, be alert, be warned, be ready, be vigilant. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years in Ephesus, for three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with what? Tears. Tears. This guy's a tearful man. He's got raw emotions about the truth and about the enemies of the truth. 
No wonder it says at the end of this entire scene, Acts 20, verse 38, being sorrowful, most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. How did they do it? Verse 37, there was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul and kissed him. Kissed him repeatedly, the text says. What's he doing? He's telling them, just what I am telling you this morning. Go forward. Go forward. Pursue the Lord with all your might. You've got to run so as to gain the prize. It's an absolutely critical matter that you move forward with the right people, following the right disciples, going in the right way. And by the way, every step of the way, you'll have everybody in your path, or so it seems, who are telling you you're going the wrong way. You're in the wrong church. You're reading and understanding the Bible in the wrong way. And the truth is this way. And he says, I'm telling you now in tears, Philippians 3.18, that there are those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, do you see the word walk there? There's the word walk in verse 17, and now there's the word walk in 18. But those two different groups aren't going in the same direction. One's walking in one direction, and the other is walking in the opposite direction. And Paul's obligated to tell both directions they're going. And you're saying, well, I'm just little old me. I mean, I'm not a Bible teacher. I don't have a PhD in theology. I I just kind of follow wherever it seems like the rest of the crowd is going or uh, what seems to be the right way. And so if Paul says, kind of walk this way and walk with me, I'm going to be okay. And I don't have to get into all the interpretive stuff and I don't have to sort of figure out all the, the theology of it. I'm just kind of walking with the crowd and it seems as though that guy's a good guy and it seems as though he ought to be followed fairly well and, and uh, that's pretty much good for me. Paul says that's only half the deal. The other half of it, you've got to be warned about those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. And I take that. The idea of the enemy of the cross of Christ is not just the idea of false teaching about the cross, I think because of the context here when he's talking about walking and he's talking about the step-by-step practicality of living the Christian life, that he's saying there are many people who will tell you this is the way to walk the Christian walk of faith. He's not talking about some fine points of theology. He's actually talking about the practical matter of walking every day with Jesus Christ. And so he says, this is the way to walk. This is the way to practically live. This is the way to be obedient. And Paul says, but it's opposite of the cross and everything that my practical Christian life is all about in the cross and by the cross and for the cross, these are imposters. You know how I know that? Paul describes them. Look at verse 19. Listen to these four things. Their end is destruction Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now, if that isn't a description, and it's vivid, and it's accurate, and it's scary, it's scary. What does he mean by their end is destruction? Their end, their telos, their final resting place, their their final goal, their final end 
is what? Destruction. And you know, that's the very word for hell. Their end is hell. This is not a believer. They're purporting to be a believer. They say they're a professing Christian, but their end is not heaven. Their end is not the resurrection of their bodies. Their end is not the redemption of their bodies joined to their souls. Their end is destruction. Back in chapter 1, Paul says, don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. But it's a clear sign of your salvation, and that's salvation from God. So Paul is this pastoral exemplar to the max because he not only tells you what's true and who to follow, and he also not only tells you what's true in terms of doctrine, he also warns you and says, beware, be watching out, be careful, don't walk that way, don't walk with them because their end is destruction. Why? Why is their end destruction, Paul? Second phrase, their God is their belly. Notice the small g. Their God is their belly. What does that mean? They're worshiping their stomach? Well, it, it, it could mean that in the literal sense, but it probably means something like this. Belly could have a number of different meanings, but maybe in this context it means something like this. Their inner desires, their inner appetites, their urges, their drives, their motivations. And I think it means that because, guess what? Paul's talking about goals, aims, pursuits. So what are the aims, the goals, the pursuits of this group, the many who are enemies of the cross of Christ? Here's their goal, their belly, their inner urges, their desires. So much so, it's their God. It's their God. It's not the real God, the God with a capital G, Yahweh God, the Lord Jesus Christ, not that. They're enemies of the cross of Christ because their inner desires and their urges are their God. And maybe even more ghastly than all that, they glory in their shame. And this is why I think it's practical Christian living that they're saying they're living but they don't instead of just esoteric doctrine. Because this word shame is actually used in other contexts, including in the Old Testament, to talk about sexual immorality. It's actually talking graphically about sexual organs. Their shame, what they're doing in secret, is actually what they glory in. They're putting our, all their eggs in that basket. That's really who they are. And Paul says, you got to know who they are. And if you know that even if they come and say they've got right doctrine but they're really doing this, their end is destruction, and I'll tell you why, because their gods are their own urges, and their shame is actually, ironically, what they're glorying in. They're not glorying in the cross. They're not glorying in Christ. They're not glorying in Christian living by way of a kind of living that means holiness is something to behold, something to glory in. They're not doing that. They're actually living in such a way that you better go a hundred miles away from them. Run as fast as you can. This is, this is very, very important to be warned. 
even through tears. And why does all of this come about? Because their minds are set on earthly things. Oh, what does that mean? It means that your whole life bent is toward these things that make you an enemy of the cross. This is your mindset. This is your pattern. This is your life walking. And he says, if you're going to walk, you can't walk like the enemies of Christ who do these things. You walk as an imitator of those who walk with Christ. This is clear. This is so clear that you and I have a choice to make. And what is that choice? That choice is this. Watch out how you walk. How do you walk? What's your pattern of life? Who are you when no one's looking? What do you do when no one's there? Because you and I know God is there. He's watching. Sees everything. Sees into the deep recesses of my heart. And when I'm walking, the step-by-step pattern of my life, even if I don't see the crowd, even if at some times I have to walk alone in whatever construct I find myself in my walk, but I will tell you, the way God has set up the economy of our walking is designed, my friends, to be together. Now, we're not always together. And when we aren't, we ought to be following Jesus Christ most assiduously, most carefully, most closely. And when we're together, we'll be the most encouraging to our brothers and sisters. And when we are, we can assure ourselves that we're walking in a way that imitates the very ones who are imitating Jesus Christ himself, walking with that example. We'll finish the rest of this passage next Lord's Day. But it's really easy today. Here's the take-home lesson of the message. How are you walking? In what ways are you walking? Are you walking as those who are exemplars of Jesus Christ or are you walking as enemies of Christ? These are professing Christians. These are ones who are traveling in and through the fellowship. You got to know who they are. And when you do, stake your mark. Place your stand. And we'll talk about that next time. Let's pray. Father, this is so very clear that if we walk forward toward Christ, the aim, the goal, the pursuit of knowing Jesus Christ intimately, following Him, loving Him, obeying Him, we're going to be those whom others want to follow. And while we're doing that, we will hear the clarion sounds of the many who are walking as enemies of the cross of Christ, and they're going to say, no, come in here. No, do it this way. Walk in this fashion. Don't do the other. This is better. This is easier. This is more right than that. And we pray that you would give us the discernment not to fall into the trap of walking with those who are enemies of the cross. And we pray that you would put us 
in the company, not only of a few, but put us in the company of the whole, the local church, for which we would all say, I must be involved with the entirety of the local church. I must not only be involved with a few who are there, but I want to be involved with the many who are there who are feeding me upon Christ, who are discipling me in the faith, who are warning me of the dangers to come. And I pray that this will be the mindset of every one of us. We need each other. We need the local church. It will be that which you use to show us how to walk the worthy walk and be like Jesus Christ one day, in whose name we pray, amen.